That was 2013 National Heritage Fellow Seamus Connolly playing a reel composed by Patty Kelly. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Seamus Connolly is a teacher, scholar, and as you heard, a remarkable Irish fiddler. By his mid-twenties, Connolly had won the Irish National Fiddle Championship 10 times, a feat that's still unequaled. Since emigrating to the United States in the 1970s, Seamus has performed at numerous festivals throughout the country, including the National Folk Festival, the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, and with three of the extraordinarily successful Masters of the Folk Violin Tours, organized by the National Council for the Traditional Arts. Connolly's recordings include two solo CDs, Notes from My Mind and Here and There, as well as The Boston Edge, with John McGann and 2004 NEA National Heritage Fellow Joe Durain. Since 2004, Connolly has been the Sullivan Artist-in-Residence at Boston College's Center for Irish Programs, where he had previously directed the highly acclaimed Gaelic Roots Summer School and Festival. Not surprisingly, he's the recipient of many awards, and now he's added a National Heritage Fellowship a lifetime honor presented to master folk and traditional artists by the National Endowment for the Arts. I traveled to Maine to visit with Seamus when he was awarded the Heritage Fellowship. I began by asking him to explain what makes Irish fiddling Irish fiddling. Well, it's different from other traditions. Irish music can be very simple and beautiful, and the simplicity is where the beauty is. But there are elements of the music that define some of the style as well, you know. Uh, You have ornaments, particular ornaments. You can do ornaments with the bow, but there are finger ornaments as well. And it would be the same kind of an ornament that would be in the classical music, a roll, a five-finger, five-note roll. There are bow triplets, which is done with the bow, the same not done three times, but done in such a way that the bow doesn't move separately three times. You know, it's done like clicking the bow to the string, you know. Crossbowing, crossing from the strings. There's a, an ornament called weaving bow. Da, 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 which you would have a whole series of notes done on one bow. So elements like that would define probably the musician like myself, that I, I probably would do those because I was much attracted to them in the playing of some of the old masters that came to this country back at the turn of the last century. It's important to keep in mind that when you play this music that you don't overdo it, but you also maybe incorporate some of these elements. Well, that seems like that would be a tension. For example, in competition, I would imagine that you would want to exactly. really show your show exactly. your stuff. that you can do these things. Exactly. You can do these things, yeah. Competition never interested me. Even though you've won so many. Yes, it never interested me. That's you know? so interesting. Yeah. The reason that my mother used to take me to these competitions was I didn't have a teacher. I had nobody to teach me. And at that time, one was allowed to record the competitions. And so with the advent of the reel-to-reel tape recorder, I brought that with me everywhere. And so I could get to hear the great players and learn all the tunes and songs to call them in this country, you know. But I could take those home and study them. And then I was able to slow it down, and I could hear what was going on. And I did the same thing with the old 78 recordings. 
I would slow it down to and try and tune the fiddle down to that and try and match that and emulate what was going on. So competition for me, it had, it had its place because I got to go to these things and meet the great fiddle players that were in these competitions. But most of all, I got to meet people like the judges and the old musicians from whom I learned most of my tunes. And I was young at the time in these competitions, but I was always made feel very welcome by the older people who would invite me in to join them and sit with them. And they allowed me to record what they were doing, and I would watch them. And then they would make tapes for me as well, always very generous and very gracious. And I'll never forget that. And for me, it's from whence the music came or where it came from that I try to carry on that tradition. I think it's important. You know, it's an old cliche, and it can, you know, people say, oh, it's a living tradition, and it changes. And, and it does, up to a point, but it should change in such a way that we have respect for the music for, for, from whence it came, you know. Yeah, that's another tension of wanting to honor the tradition. That's exactly right. But at the same time, not pickle it. Yes, exactly. And, you know, there were times in my career when, you know, I experimented with incorporating different styles into my playing, and... Uh, and it was fun, and I enjoyed it. I wasn't playing, if you like, within the box. But as I get older, I'm inclined to go back to the older tradition. And I'm very pleased with listening to some of the young musicians now playing and recording. We had a concert here a few weeks ago, two young Irish musicians. And it was some of the nicest music I've ever heard. They were technically great, played in a great style, but they honoured, as you said, the musicians from where they got the music from. And it was just a joy to hear them. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that, that the tradition carries on in such a way. You know, the music changes, but it's important that we try and remember that we keep it as close as we can. You know, otherwise, it just, the whole thing becomes distorted and it becomes homogenized, if you like, you know. It's so interesting that with traditional arts, I'm finding, and I wonder if you find this as well, I think maybe 35 years ago or so, there was real danger of those traditions being lost. And there has been such a switch so that more and more younger people are more invested in it, really interested in learning it, and and audiences too, I think. Are you talking about Irish music? I'm talking about not just Irish music, but old-time music. Right. Just folk and traditional arts in general. I think there's such uh, an embrace of them. And Irish music, most certainly. Yeah, I would agree with that. Irish music, when I was a kid growing up, was at a very low ebb. It was, you know, almost gone. And when I played music... I was sort of laughed at and frowned at, and I would put my... By your peers? By my peers, and the people in the town um, said, what's he doing this all diddly-diddly stuff for, you know? And I used to put the fiddle inside my top coat, my overcoat. You know, I'd be trying to practice and play at home, and she said, why don't you go over to Granny's and play? She has a great big bedroom up there, and it's, it's empty, and I used to do that. But I would only do it at night. I didn't have a fiddle case. I had a brown paper bag. And so I didn't, I didn't advertise that I was playing this music because I was laughed at and I wasn't out kicking football or playing hurling like the rest of the people that I went to school with.
But now looking back on it with my schoolmates sometimes and hear from them and they say, God, I have wonderful memories of you. We'd stand outside the window, listen to your practicing. But yet back then they were laughing at me and they say, I wish that I had done that. You know, after the, the war, I was born in 44 and people didn't have money to do much. They were trying to build their lives and the musicians that were playing it were emigrating to England. And I remember families and men going off to work in England and they'd come back once a year at Christmas. Looking back on that, that was kind of sad. There was no money for music lessons, no money for concerts, no money for, for anything. So there was an organization that had great vision. It was a group of four or five musicians got together at a weekend in the middle of the country and decided we need to do something to preserve the music, the singing and the dancing and the language. So they formed an organization, give it an Irish title, Cultus Cultoria Erin, which is the Association of Irish Traditional Musicians. And that was in 1950-51. they decided to create an interest, they would form these competitions. Oh. Yeah. Out of that, then, they had the national competitions, which they called the All-Ireland Championships. And you'd compete in your own area and then try and get to the finals. Uh, there was no music being taught in the schools. I learned tin whistle from my teacher, Mrs. Lynch. That's as much as we ever got, a few marches or something. So they had the vision and the foresight to approach the government. And this is only within the last 30 years, approached the government to look for funding where they could bring teachers into the technical schools at nighttime. And then it, and it went from there and it evolved into the national schools now. And they have classes in the national schools. So there's classes all over the place. And so the kids today have that opportunity to learn, whereas I didn't. I had to figure it all out on my own. Was your family musical? Yes, they were, yeah. Both my parents played, my mother played. She used to scrape a few tunes on the fiddle, but she played piano and played the accordion. My father played the flute and whistle, and he was a Shannos, old-style dancer. Different in that he made his own steps up. I remember he danced on television one night, and it was just amazing to see him. And people were fascinated with his style of playing, because they hadn't seen that before. Just tapped out his own dancing. He was a great, great dancer, you know. So we had music in, in our home pretty much all the nights of the winter anyway. When our homework was done, another brother who played piano, my younger brother, he plays the accordion. He won the national championship a few times too on the accordion. And now he makes accordions. Yeah, so we had music in our home all the time. Now, how did you become a fiddle player? Why the fiddle? My uncle played the fiddle. And in 1954, there was a big series of emigration again to America this time. And my uncle left for America, he and his family, for New York. They had, at that time, what they called an American wake, a going-away party. Strange kind of a title, an American wake. But um, it was the notion at the time that people who left for America, that, that they'd never be seen again. It was almost like a death in the family. But my uncle went to America. He, he went back every year. 
<laughs> back to Ireland. So they had this big party. There was all the local musicians. My uncle was playing the fiddle, and then during the evening he put the fiddle on the chair and was down talking to people. I went up and sat in the chair and picked up the fiddle and pretended to play. And in fact, some people thought I was playing. <laughs> That'll tell you what they thought about music or knew about music, you know. <laughs> but I went home then and I said to my parents, I'd love to get a fiddle to try it out. So my father found me a fiddle. <clears throat> so somebody put strings on it and they didn't know how to tune it up or anything. So I tuned it up as what I thought it should be tuned. I tuned it in fourths. Do, mi, so, do. And that would be different from tuning in fifths. So I was playing away for about maybe six months, and I'd play and I'd getting all the songs out of the tune, but I didn't use my little finger. I'd slide my third finger up, which was strange. So anyway, I was playing for six months, and the tunes were coming out. My uncle was the local barber, and he was cutting a man's hair one day, and he, he didn't know who the person was, so my uncle asked him, where, where do you live? He said, I just moved to the town. He said, I played the fiddle. Oh, my, my nephew plays the fiddle. And the guy said, I'd love to hear him. And he was from a famous place in County Clare, had a lot of music in it. And so my uncle said, I'll bring him to meet you. So I went to meet him and I played for the man. And he's looking at me fascinated. And then he said, well, give me the fiddle. And he went to go play and he couldn't play. So he tuned it in the, I suppose you would call it, international standard tuning. And then he played away, he was a great player. And then he gave it back to me and I couldn't play anymore. So... I went home, my mother was in bed, and I went up to say goodnight to her. She says, how did you make out with the man, you know? I said, I, I was doing it wrong. I have to start all over again. Ah, she said, don't listen to him, you know. She says, you're doing fine. <laughs> There's so, a mother for you. Yeah, yeah, don't listen to him, she says, you know. I went on from there then and went on to compete and like I said to you competitions were great um, don't get me wrong you know I, the reason I went was because I wanted to meet the other great musicians I remember one of my rivals in competitions was a great fiddle player who lives in London and it was Brendan Midlinchy and the year that Brendan Midlinchy beat me in the competition was the year that I enjoyed most of all for all from all these competitions because I got to play in the street. I, I wasn't worried about the final being at that night and all geared up for the final. So I was beaten in the morning, so I was able to get a chance to play on the street and meet all those people and record them and everything. Does that give you some idea of what mm -hmm, the competition much, meant yeah. to me? Yeah. Did you play out in sessions with other musicians I did, a lot then? I did. We did that. Um, sessions weren't the thing. The only sessions that would be would be at the Fla Kjols. Fla being festival, Kjol being music. That was the only time that we would kind of get to play. Mo music was mostly in the homes at the time. It wasn't until the last 30 or 35 years that you have sessions and pubs and everything. I didn't go to a pub to play growing up. We went to people's homes. And the sessions were different then. Sometimes musicians would come to your house. They wouldn't even take out the instruments. We'd sit and talk maybe all night and talk about ways of doing things. Or somebody would say, oh yeah, what's that tune? And they might take out his accordion or fiddle and... And then somebody will say, well, I have a different version of that. I heard that. And all of this would be all documented and all recorded. And so I have edited a lot of all of that stuff, so I, but I still do have the tapes. 
So that's how we played our music. I wasn't going out to the pubs. It was people coming to the homes. When was the first time you played publicly, other than a competition, not in somebody's home? Do you remember? First time I ever played publicly was in 1956 with the Hungarian Revolution, you know, the uprising oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah, Hungary. Yeah, yeah. So there was thousands of refugees came to Ireland and they came close. To, there was an army barracks, an army camp close to where I lived. I think I was about 12 at the time. So they invited me to play. For them, and that was my first public outing to playing in a group of a few thousand people. So I always remember that. What was that like for, for you? The, for the refugees. Um, I remember it well. I felt like I was inviting these, these people to my country and um, wanted to make them feel welcome. You began recording, and there's an early recording you did, Rambles of Kitty. Kitty. Yes. What was recording like as opposed to performing in front of people? I recorded in, in my home. The, the local priest had a, a, a tape recorder and we recorded a night of music and song and dance in our home that we sent to New York to my uncle. So that was fun. But to get back to recording The Rambles of Kitty, that was done in 1966, I think, something like that, in Dublin. We just recorded it and we were done with it. We only got to do it once and that was it. But it came out. It was a nice album that came out. The other album I did was called The Banks of the Shannon. I was just going to ask you about that. That was huge. That was huge. Big, big success. You know, I had many copies. They printed a few thousand, but they were all sold before the record ever came out. And I heard, tell me if this is true, you were in the studio for like an hour and 50 minutes? An hour minutes. and 50 minutes. Yeah, we did the whole thing in an hour and 50 minutes. We spent all day recording for an American tour with singing and group playing and everything. We only had two hours to record. We had four to six to do this whole album. It wasn't an album, it was a mini LP, I think. That's what, there were six sides. So we did six sides. We didn't even get to hear it. We recorded it once. I didn't even hear the balance of it. Somebody else was doing that. And um, they said, OK, that's it, we're done. And both Paddy O'Brien and I hated it when we heard it. You know, it seemed like we were playing too fast, and we probably were, because our adrenaline was, you know... Pumping. We said, we've got to be out of here in two hours, got to get this done, we've got to travel back down the country. We're not going to get a chance to do this again, you know. And who was the third musician? Dr. Charlie Lennon, piano player, who's playing a love. So that was a great success. Uh, it set standards, well, according to the media and people that, has not been surpassed yet, but that I don't believe, you know. But it was a fine recording, except Paddy O'Brien and I didn't like what we heard. When did you start composing? Probably when I came to this country. I was on the Masters of the Folk Violin Tour. Organized by NCTA. NCTA. Yeah. We did two tours in 88. My mother passed away. I had gone to see her the week before. I went back over and we put it to rest. And then one morning I was in bed about four o'clock in the morning, and this something was coming to my head, and I got the fiddle out and started to diddle and, you know, with tunes. And um, all of a sudden, the tune came from nowhere to me. It was like the first tune that I had ever made up, and I named it for my mom, I'll Always Remember You. I got so many tunes from her, and she used to jig her little tunes for me and play them, and I feel like it's the last tune that she ever gave to me. When did you come to America to move here? I came in 72 on the first cultist tour, and then I came in 76, emigrated. What made you decide to emigrate here? 
I loved America so much when I came on the Coltis tour. That was in 72. And in 72, uh, in New York, they had the Irish Music Association of America here in New York and in Chicago. But they became affiliated with Coltis Curatorial. So I came back in 74, and so I'd stay on for a few weeks and then maybe do some playing and do a little bit of traveling. And I made more money like in three weeks than I was making for a whole year in Ireland. So things then were, were bad in Ireland at the time. And so I thought America would be a great place to come to, you know, which it was and is. So I'm here since. You've worked at Boston College for many years. How did you begin your association there? Michal O'Sullivan from Cork University, I think he was at the time in Ireland, he was a visiting scholar at Boston College. And he was there for, I think, a whole semester. So he had this idea as part of the Irish studies program at the university. It's not complete without the music and the dancing and the singing. And how right he was. So Mick got this idea and he phoned me up. He said, would you help me put together a fiddle festival? I said, sure. We did. There's that famous Boston College fiddle festival. It was 16 of the top Irish and Irish-American fiddle players. So it went on. That was a great success. So before he left, he went to the administration and um, said, you need to hire Seamus Conley. And so they did, but I wasn't interested in being full-time. So I said, I'll do it part-time because I kind of was into the music then after coming off the Masters of the Folk Violin Tour. I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. Well, that tour was also remarkable. It was. The people that that Joe Wilson and NCTA brought together. There was you, bluegrass, jazz. I mean, it was... Alison Krauss, Kenny Baker, you know. And she was 16. She was, unbelievable, you know. So I thought this was great. And so I was making a living and working part-time at Boston College. But then I said... There's no future in this. So in 1991, I organized, it was 200 years after the commemoration of the Belfast Harp Festival, which was 1791. So I ran a harping festival that weekend and brought in different people, weekend of classes and lectures. And then I was still part-time there. Then in 1992, I ran a singing festival, the old traditional Shanos styles of singing. And then I ran the first of the Gaelic Roots weekends in 93. So and then my boss, Adele Dalsimer, she was a wonderful lady, she had um, formed the Irish Studies Program. And Adele says to me, you can't do this forever, you know, you're going to kill yourself. I said, I, I could, Adele, if I was full-time. And I was hired full-time. So I continued then with the week of Gaelic Roots and... There was really nothing like that as a music camp singing anywhere. It was all uh, housed on campus, and we did nighttime events in Boston, and we had the musicians play the national anthem live on television before the baseball game. We went on boat cruises. We had dinners and full-time job, full-time job, but not with not enough of help. But after 9-11, it became very difficult trying to get teachers from European countries over, you know became very difficult. 
getting visas for them. So we had to disband the program as, as it was. But now, you know, I try to continue it as best I can by having a monthly concert and lecture series right. and all sort of that. transformed it. Yeah. Now, do you actively teach students as well? I do. Do you have a particular approach to teaching? I like to teach them orally. For those who are able to read music, I allow them to do it because they say we can't learn orally. I said, you can't. So when they have the piece learned, I said, okay, turn the music upside down. How much of it can you memorize? I can't memorize any of it. Try it again. Try to get a little bit of it. You know, so they play maybe half a line. Now, see, can you play it without looking at the music? So I keep that process going. And eventually, over a period of a few weeks, they come back and say, I like this. This is better than reading because we can retain it. They can hear it. Yeah. And so that's what I do. And so at the end of the, the year, then, we have a little presentation. There's a folk arts festival on campus, and they all play without their music. And you were named one of the teachers who made a difference in people's lives in, what, 2003? I was, in fact, a few years running. Yeah, so that was very special for me, you know. My motto is to try and encourage people, make them feel good about what they do. Criticize, should I need to do it, constructively. Make them feel that they're worthwhile. I think that's what life should be about for all of us, not just in music. It's so, so interesting, you just never know the impact. You don't, no, no, You'll we never know. Somebody. We never know, and you just say one thing and you can turn people off or you can make them feel good. So that's my motto in life, do good, do good to people, you know, do good for people. Do to them what you would like to be done to yourself. That simple old rule. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And that's most important. That was 2013 National Heritage Fellow Seamus Connolly. Irish folk art is also represented in the 2014 class with dancer Kevin Doyle. To find out about the other newly named National Heritage Fellows and the 2014 NEA Jazz Masters, go to arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, we celebrate the 4th of July with that most American of art forms, jazz. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>